Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. I have so much to talk to you about today. And I'm very excited about every single part of it. You know how it is when you have something so important that you want to share. You simply hope that God will guide you with the words and the heart and the spirit and the openness of of the people that you're speaking to to receive it. That's my prayer today. A few years back, I was teaching a um, Bible study on Mark. And uh, during that Bible study, I asked this question, who is Jesus? Now, what happened was kind of interesting because they were just uh, flummoxed about how to answer that. They were trying to answer it with all the, the theology that we had been studying, with uh, the, the, uh, the atonement, the sacrificial giving. I mean, it, and it, was, it, it sounded so unnatural, and they were trying so hard. I said, okay, well, wait a minute. Imagine, you know, it's a, a, an alien coming from another planet, and they've never even heard of it. How would you describe it to them? And then there, it was worse. They were like, well, I don't even know where I would start. And they were so panicked. And finally, I kind of got it. And I said, okay, well, let's stop for a minute. And let me add two words to my question. Okay. I said, who is Jesus to you? And with those two words, there was this sigh of relief. And smiles broke out because this was personal. This was something they could talk about. And I want to I share with you that that's pretty much all anybody wants when they ask that question. They don't want all the theories. They don't want all the theology you know, uh, that you know or the doctrine. What they want to know is, what does it mean to you? So uh, our text this morning picks up right after Jesus um, Right after Jesus questions the disciples, and he asks, who, are, who do people say that I am? And I, I want to share kind of the, the um, uh, ethos right then, because the disciples are kind of excited because things were going well. People were following Jesus. Jesus was healing and doing miracles, and it was Jesus was, you know, at the top of the heap, so to speak, with all of the... Uh, the famous rabbis and the heal the the uh, healing people of that time. There were many out in the countryside, but Jesus was the top one, and so they were very excited to say. The disciples said, "Well, they're comparing you to Elijah, and they're comparing you to John the Baptist. Isn't that great? I mean, you're right at the top." But then Jesus narrows the question down, just like you know I did in that Bible study, and Jesus says. Well, okay, he gets intimate, he gets close, and he says, all right, but who do you say I am? And out of that, uh, the scriptures tell us that Peter just bursts out, you're the Messiah, with a big smile on his face, because things were going well. This was, they could tell they were on the road to success up to this point. There was a, uh, Mark had narrated Jesus' travels throughout Galilee. 
And this question and Peter's response to Jesus' response are a hinge point. And they're crucial in the, in the book of Mark, but they're also crucial for our understanding and the way we follow Jesus today. Up to this part, uh, as Mark had been narrating, he'd been doing it in a very fast sequence. That's what Mark is. Mark is kind of stripped bare. He's all business. He says, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. By the time you're through chapter 1 through the ninth verse, Jesus has gone to the Jordan, been baptized, heard the vision, and then declared himself, and it's gone on and on. And we're and up to this point in the scriptures, Jesus has um, there's a rapid, urgent sequence of events that include Jesus has healed the diseased, the disabled, and the troubled people. He told parables. He fed thousands of people from a few scraps of fish and bread. He walked on water. He stood up to those who would criticize, and he reached out to the Gentiles. And then, after all of this, he comes to them and he says, so, who do you say I am? And I can't help but think that in their minds, they're like, well, what's he up to? What is this question about? Of course, look, he's this wonder, he's this leader, he's a, he's a healer and, and a teacher, and he's the best. So obviously, his purpose wasn't compellingly clear to the people that were around him. And, and the judgments of many of his contemporaries were less than enthusiastic. Some, some uh, thought that he was crazy. Some were very suspicious of him. Others were not only suspicious of him, but there was a certainty, uh, as we see in Mark 3, that he was in league with the devil. So not only was it a certainty that he was maybe crazy, but the worst part was maybe he was speaking for the devil or for Satan. Thus, Jesus' question at that point to his followers now, as well as then, is, who do you say I am? Peter has a model response. You are the Messiah, This has become like a confession. And quite often, this text is interpreted as this was something, um, this proved Peter's uh, great faith. But then again, if you read the actual text, you might run into something very different. But when he says you're the Messiah, all of a sudden it puts in perspective Christian faith. It puts it all in perspective. The dramatic healings, the perplexing parables, the incredible miracles, and the shocking inclusion by Jesus, not only of the Gentiles, but also of women and also of children. So there was a shocking inclusion that was going on. And and so uh, Jesus, the scandal, turns into Jesus, the caring helper, the wise teacher, the opener of new possibilities, and the one who welcomes all. And none of those are bad things, but it all of a sudden makes the Messiah much more appealing than the Messiah who's going to come and rain down on the enemies. But it's the, it's the friendly Jesus. And they like that, and they're excited about it. And, and it compels us to be caring and discerning and welcoming the new and hospitable to all because that's how Jesus is. You know, have you ever noticed that when you're on the verge of winning something, 
you seem to have all the love in the world for the person who's losing, especially if you know you're going to win. I think of the, the uh, Olympics right now, and I think of how, you know, I mean, everybody's making a lot, a big deal, and it is a big deal, about when the winners are just hugging all those losers around them. And it's all so very, very, you know, just precious. But the thing is, when you win, your heart is full of love for everybody, you know? And that is exactly where the disciples thought they were. They thought they were on the verge of this is what, this is what it looks like. This is what's going to happen. We're going to come in, and all these people who are following Jesus now, we're all going to band together, and Jesus is going to bring in the new kingdom, and we're going to be the ones that are in charge. That's where they were at. Peter's model confession of faith, you are the Messiah, has a very disturbing sequel. And so we pick up with our scripture text as Jesus responds to Peter. Mark 8, 31 through 38. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all of these things quite openly. That's what the scripture says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. For you are settling your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any of you, any of you out there want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verses 34 through 37, I want to read that again to you in another version, in the message version, because I love the way the message puts it. This is verses 34 through 37. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and to lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? So Jesus begins to teach his followers. After after Peter has just declared him the Messiah, Jesus now says, okay, now now we're going somewhere. Now let me tell you what being a Messiah means. And when Peter heard what that meant, he jerks 
Jesus aside and starts just laying into him, rebuking him. You can only imagine how this teaching went over with all the disciples. What? What did you say? Take up my cross? Lose myself for the sake of the gospel? You're going to die and we're going to die? But this is what Messiahship meant for Jesus. This was the real Jesus. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to tell you now what all this means. What it means to follow me and what it means for me to be the Messiah. Now we're going to go. Peter's response, I think, makes it pretty clear that he doesn't look at this as good news. It it even seems that rising from the dead in three days isn't even adequate compensation for what they're going to have to go through because Jesus does say that I'm going to die, then I'm going to raise after three days, and that part seems to be just missing from their psyche. They don't understand this complete, complete victory. The unacceptable is followed by the unbelievable. So unacceptable is Jesus' understanding of his messianic agenda that Peter, who has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, rebukes Jesus. You know, I was looking, uh, I was thinking, what what does rebuke mean? I mean, if I was rebuking Jesus, I I would hear myself saying, now, Jesus, um, let's, you know, let's calm down. You know, let's just calm down for a minute and think this through. But that's not what the word rebuke means. The word rebuke, the synonyms are tell off, scold, ball out, chew out, reprimand, take to task. Can you imagine? Jesus, what do you think you're doing out there? You're going to scare everybody away. We're just now getting some traction. We're just now getting what we need. And then Jesus turns to him and says, you are thinking not like God. You are thinking in terms of uh, human thought, in terms of the world. You think that these crowds and all of this is what it all means? You think that that's my success? You don't get it yet. And so Jesus demands that he lets himself be Jesus. He goes, look, I'm, you're not in the driver's seat. I am. And if you can't, if you can't follow me, then you need to go away. And he says, get behind me, because Peter at that moment was trying to lead. Here, Jesus, let me show you how, what it means to be Messiah. And, you know, you might, I think you've got it all wrong. And Peter, as we know later on, is also very protective of Jesus. You don't have to die. Yeah, and somebody else has just said that to him when he was in the desert for 40 days. You don't need to die. Why? So Jesus is very, very clear. But Peter was blinded by his preconceptions. He has cherished convictions about what it meant to be a Messiah. And the Messiah's agenda should be that he wouldn't allow Jesus to uh, have the agenda that must be. And And I wonder sometimes if that isn't exactly what we do. You know, I just want to say this straight out. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. It's not. It's not enough to believe in Jesus, and it's not enough 
to feel guilty about everything you don't do. That's not enough either. Because when you believe in Jesus, that means you live Jesus. That means you follow Jesus. That means you do Jesus. That doesn't mean that you just theoretically believe in Jesus. And you know why that's not enough? Because Jesus came to be incarnate, to be a person in the flesh here, to show what it meant. And we are the body of Christ, the incarnate body of Christ that is meant to have arms and feet and mouth and heart and mind. That's who we are, so it's not enough. There are no observers in Christianity. There are no observers. And there are none of us that are just cheerleaders. We're all out on the field playing the game back and forth. It's got to be that way. I mean, sometimes arrogantly we assume that we know what must be done. We want to lead Jesus. No, you, we, we say, no, you can't mean that. Jesus can't mean that. There's got to be a loophole somewhere. I just love my enemy, feed the poor, share what I have, don't value my stuff. There's got to, there's a, uh, it's got to be softer than that. We always want Jesus to be different than who Jesus is. And we want Jesus to be saying something different than what he says. And he doesn't. He's, it's pretty clear. We, so we assume we know what must be done. And then, and then we go so far as to say that there are areas of life that God doesn't belong that God really shouldn't meddle in other things. That there's no room for God in politics. There's no room for God in this. But what we don't understand is there's, there, that there's room for God everywhere because God is in it. So we've got to get in it with God. That's the difference. We aren't, we aren't politicians. We are Christians. And that immediately puts us into the center of the political scene because we're talking about marginalized. We're talking about the poor. We're talking about all the things that matter in who we are as a, as a country, as a world together. So we go into all of these things as Christians with the spirit of God moving in us. We don't say God doesn't belong there. God's already there. It's just can we open our eyes and catch up? And not even a word from Jesus can dissuade our thinking sometimes because we're blinded by our own prejudices, we're blinded by our own presuppositions, and we're blinded by our preconceptions. And all we can do is ask God, take away our blinders, if you're brave enough to do it. Because God is, God wants to do that, and God is seeking to do that. And every time your heart is broken for another person, that's God breaking down that barrier to be God in your life. Uh, All of those things of the way things must be, and and we would not be convinced otherwise, even even were someone to rise from the dead, which they did. Jesus did rise from the dead. And of course, you know, we would never rebuke Jesus. I I wouldn't scold Jesus or, you know, or, or tell Jesus off or anything like that. But you know what? We do it in a different way. Our rebukes are of a kinder and gentler way. We respond with neglect. 
just benign. And the worst, worst thing of all is we respond with indifference. We respond sometimes, and that's the same way of, of rebuking Jesus, saying, you know, that's just, it's too much. What you're asking, it's too much. I'm one person, I can't do anything. And I just think about Mother Teresa says, yeah, but you're one person, can't you do something? You can't do everything, but can you do something? Peter's rebuke reflects the way we humans think. That's what Jesus says in the scripture. The way to victory is the way of power and might, the might that makes all things right and results in a glorious kingdom. And then we just look at human history and just look at our own lives. But for Jesus and any who would be Jesus' followers, there is another way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the premier theologians of the, of the 20th century and who died um, in a concentration camp just days before his liberation, led a movement to, uh, against, he was a German who led the movement against Hitler. And he's an incredible uh, witness to the power of Christ and also to what's demanded of him. He says this, the call goes out. The disciples' answer is not a spoken confession of faith in Jesus. Instead, it is the obedient deed. What is said is about the content of discipleship. Follow me. Walk behind me. That's all. That's all Jesus says. Follow me and walk behind me. Discipleship isn't a volunteer job. It's a calling. Follow me. And either we get up and we follow Christ, or we don't. There's no in-between. To be a follower of Christ is to walk behind Jesus, to go the way that Jesus has gone. And going after him is something without specific content. Sometimes this is very confusing to us. But it's truly not a program for your life which would be sensible to implement, It's neither a goal nor an ideal that is sought after. It's not even a matter for which, according to human uh, inclination, it would be worth investing anything about ourselves at all. And what happens when all of that is laid out in front of these disciples? Those who call left everything behind they have, not in order to do anything valuable. Instead, they did it simply because of the call itself. They didn't know why. They didn't know about the the resurrection. They didn't know why Jesus called them in the first place. Jesus said, come with me, and I'll I'll give you something to fish about. And they dropped it, and they followed him. Instead, they did it simply for the sake of the call itself, because otherwise they could not walk behind Jesus. The bridges are torn down, and life goes on. We are called away. And when we're called away, when we're called away by Jesus, we're supposed to at least step out of our previous existence, out of our shell of how we viewed the world and how we experienced the world. And we're supposed to exist in the strict sense of the word. And former things are left behind, and we are a new creation. That's the promise of the gospel. But the first generation of apostles didn't know anything, what they were in for. But we know, 
The way of Christ leads to the cross. It is, we shiver, the way of the crucified, and we think twice about it, and we think three times, and we reconsider, and we weigh it, and then, and then, and then what? Once again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we all know that Christ has, in effect, been eliminated from our lives. Of course, we build him a temple, but we live in our own houses. Christ has become a matter of the church, or rather of the churchliness of a group, not a matter of life. Religion plays for the psyche of our times the role of the so-called Sunday room, into which one gladly withdraws for a couple of hours, but only to get back to one's place of work, one's real life, immediately after. However, I think one thing is very clear. We understand, we understand Christ only if we commit ourselves to Christ, a stark yes or no. That's the only way we can understand Christ. Christ did not go to the cross to uh, ornament or embellish our lives. If we wish to have him, and this is the critical part, if we wish to have Christ, then Christ demands the right to say something decisive about our entire life. There is no corner that Christ does not belong in our entire life. We do not understand him if we arrange for him only a small compartment in our spiritual life. We can never understand this Christ. Rather, we understand our spiritual life only if it orientates us to him. Only if it orientates us to him alone or we're able to give a flat-out no. We cannot be in between. Because the truth of the matter is that the religion of Christ is not a tidbit of bread. The religion of Christ is bread itself. Have you not heard? Do you not know? My friends, if you want to follow Jesus, let Jesus be Jesus when you follow him. Amen.